In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Don Andrea McCarthy. Don is an adult survivor of abandonment, parental abduction, and severe parental alienation. She was abducted by a mother at the age of four, and it took her forty-four years to finally reunite with her father. It is an incredible story that illustrates the power of not giving up when it comes to parental abduction. She is also the CEO of Securing Everything, the chair for the National Parents Organization of Florida. An associate producer of the hit documentary film *Erasing Family*. Don is also the co-founder and host of the Humanly Possible channel found on Facebook. Now, this is part two of a three-part series with Don, and I'm joined by my co-host for this series, Thomas Saviskas, a lesbian parent from Japan. If you want to know more about Thomas's story, you can just go back to the episode that we did with him a while back. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Don, can you explain a little bit about how was it for you? Because uh, you said that you found your dad a couple of times, but it took you to have your own kids and all that to have the courage and the conviction to finally go see him. So, can you talk to me a little bit more about how did you process the reunification process before it happened in your head? What uh, what kind of preparation you did? Uh, how did you find your dad and all that? Because I know that's a lot of uh, teenagers will be listening to this. So we can even sound by this and uh, put it into like you know social media and all that. So can you give someone like a guide slash your own experience into doing all this? Yeah, one of the things that um, I know that it, I felt it, and no matter how much you try to deny it, no matter how much you try to suppress it, you have this. Sorry, <laughs> you have this aching desire to know who that parent is because it's that other half of you. So it lurks around in the back of your mind, you can feel it deep down in your heart, even though you're not outwardly expressing it because you may not be allowed to, you may not think that you need to do anything about it, but there's things that happen in your life that aren't explained because you're not finding the right answers. You don't have the whole story. You don't even know who you truly are unless you find your other parent. And it takes It's the only way possible to heal from all the trauma that you may or may not realize that you're going through is to have that other parent heal with you. It takes, it takes that parent to come back in to fill in all those holes and all those details and to um, heal all the wounds that you don't even really acknowledge yet, but, but that, but it's there. I promise you it's there. And once you start to think about what that means for you, it starts to make sense. And all of a sudden, the desire gets stronger and stronger, and you just have to know. And here's the, here's the part that I think is very urgent, is that there is no time to waste in finding a parent because you don't know if it's going to be too late. And I had that staring me in the face saying, Dawn, if you don't do this, you may never have the opportunity to know anything. 
And if you think about what I've discovered since I found my father, I would have never known my brothers. I wouldn't have never known my nieces. I would have never known all of the cousins that have embraced me and welcomed me into the family without even knowing me. So my own family was there to embrace the part of me that was rejected by my step family. So there's so much healing that you don't even realize that you need until you face it. And you have to come out of that. Sometimes it's denial. Sometimes it's just you just don't even know it. But when you start hearing these things and your heart tells you to listen, you really need to listen and you really need to take action because it might be too late. And even though you might find them, for example, my story, I found my dad and only to lose him again for the second time in one lifetime. That's the thing. I didn't lose him once. I lost him twice in one lifetime. So if you think that you have time, you don't. Time is not on your side if you just keep letting days go by, months go by, and years go by. And now you have kids of your own. And what if they ask, well, who's your daddy? Or who's your mommy? You know, what are you going to tell them? These are, these are signs that you need to, to listen to and take action on. Because you cannot be your whole self without knowing your whole self, which means you have to embrace your biological parent's side. That's so important. Healing will not ever truly be done or accomplished without that. Okay, so you keep mentioning that uh, you became a private investigator uh -huh. while looking for your dad. Can you explain a little bit about how that happened? And also, like, do you have any advice for any uh, teenagers or, or, like, you know, even grown-ups yeah. out there? Were currently looking for their children, uh, for their parents, on how to go about it. Yeah. So when I started, you know, I, I started telling you about when I got my, I was in, I was in school getting my bachelor's degree for criminal justice victimology, and that's when I found the other group of people that have also been abducted by a parent. And this discovery started taking place. Well, the more I tried at that point, I was so determined. And this was back in my, let's see, I was in my thirties, I guess, because I graduated in 2009. So not very long ago that I was determined at this point to find my dad. Well, the problem, part of the problem was, is I didn't have his birthday, you know, previous to this. So it took, it took a long time for my mom to finally tell me what his birthday was. So right around that same time frame, just prior to me finding this other group of people, she told me his birthday. And that made a huge difference because my, my dad's name is Patrick McCarty. It is a very common Irish name and there's Patrick McCarty's all over the world. And I've talked to probably 20 or 30 of them. And it, it was just a needle in a haystack. It was like, I'm never going to be able to accomplish this. Well, the birth date helped me narrow it down. So the determination I had was stronger and stronger at this point. And now I knew I needed to find it. But, oh, my gosh, you know, where am I going to look? Because we didn't, again... We weren't really, we didn't have Facebook and I didn't have MySpace. I was in criminal justice and cybersecurity. So you, I'm not getting on that crazy social media stuff. <laughs> that was my mindset because, you know, the internet is dangerous when we're sharing all this information. I knew it back then. So I didn't have an account. My kids didn't have an account. They had a shared email address and that was all they were allowed as kids. 
So how am I going to find this this person? And I decided, well, how would a private investigator do it? Someone told me to hire one. This this is where it kind of made me think. Well, if I hire one, it's going to cost me money. I'm a single parent, and I don't get you know assistance from their father. They're, he's not paying child support or anything like that. So, you know, how how am I going to afford a private investigator to go find my dad? So I decided to become one myself. And that w- I was hoping that this will give me access to databases and information, and I'll learn how to find missing people. And so that's kind of how I ended up getting into into that. And um, I found him, and I sent him um, a letter, and it came back saying, no longer at this address. Well, I thought, okay, so he was there, and he just moved. So I need to find out, where did he move? So I'm in the same position, like, okay, now how do I find this? So it took a while, but once I had the birthday, then I I was able to narrow down the search, and I was able to find. Re- or I found him again. I sent him a birthday card because it was coming up on his birthday, and so I sent him a birthday card, wishing him happy birthday, and asking him if he would mind answering some questions because I'm looking for my biological father. Well, the card was returned as no longer at this address. Also, so I struck out again. Now the the funny part of our story is that um, we lived in the same county back in 1990, 91, 92, um, no, 1999, sorry. Uh, they had moved to Florida and we were all living in the same county, but we didn't know it. He didn't know I was still living there. I didn't know he moved there. And then when I left my husband, I left the state. So if I had known, that my dad was just living 13 miles up the road, I'd have stayed. I wouldn't have left the state. I'd have stayed right there. I would have been reunited with him then. And we both had lived in um, similar areas previous to that too. We both lived in Washington. You know, it was just really weird. So all this stuff started coming in and at different times. So it wasn't a, I wasn't able to like piece it together really until we did find each other, then we were able to say, oh my gosh, we lived, we, we probably passed each other in the grocery store <laughs> because right after I was getting my divorce, I moved it to, from Colorado back to Florida, I lived in Tarpon Springs, which is where my dad lived. And we both lived in the same town for five months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we didn't know it. Absolutely. So it was like we were crossing incredible. the left and right and we didn't know it now i know we crossed i know we passed each other on the road we had to have <clears throat> there's no way you can be in this small town and not pass each other on the road or you know go through the same drive through window or walk around in the grocery store we have no idea and this is this is another instance where uh, a lot of people saying wait you know 18 whatever years they come they're gonna come back mm-hmm. uh how are we going to come back? Where are we going to start to look from? Because uh, after so many years, when the other parent is so secretive for whatever reason mm-hmm. uh, and gives you zero information, you can literally live next door to your oh, yeah. child, to your to your parent. And not know it. Uh, and, and not know it. And you can literally go mm-hmm. and drink coffee in the same Starbucks and sit next next to the table or even share and the table happened. at times. Yeah. And and you will have no clue whatsoever. Yep. We see stories like this on the news all the time. 
that, oh my gosh, they work together at this location. They found out that they're long lost brothers or, you know, that they have, you know, mother, father, mother, daughters or whatever. It happens all the time. But to say that a child can just go and find or a parent can just go and find is an insurmountable challenge when one parent conceals the child for so long, you don't even know where to look. You don't even know where to start. And I started, I was looking for 10 years actively um, on and off because, you know, when you, when I hit a brick brick wall, it was discouraging and I felt alone and I just felt like it was an impossible thing. So it wasn't until December of 2015 that I actually got on Facebook and created an account and decided to go against my better judgment and get on this social media thing and started doing a search and I found even more Patrick McCarty's and it was like, Oh, good Lord. And I found in my research and my investigation time, I found a marriage license that had his name, the same birth date that I was like, I know this has got to be the right person. And I got the name of his, you know, the bride to be right. So I had that. Well, when I was on Facebook, I actually found that person. And then I was like, so this is, this is the right couple. So if this, if this is who I think my father has been for the last 10 years, this has got to be him. But he had a picture of his dog for his profile photo. And I'm like, how do you, how can you tell? I can't even see what he looks like. You know, so I sent him messages, but you know, in Facebook, how it has the, the inbox, but then it also has the message request inbox where if you're not friends and it goes in there and yeah, if you are not related to that person in any way, yeah. then it goes. So I went in there and he never saw it. So and if you're not computer savvy or Facebook right. savvy, so to speak, so to speak, you'll never even notice a little bubble screaming yeah. that you right. have. I didn't request. realize it existed for a year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I'm computer savvy. Like I know how to do stuff. Yeah, well, and he was too, but he didn't. He didn't realize that there was a message in there because it's usually people you don't even know it's not you're not expecting your long lost daughter to start sending you messages so uh, and um i was really careful about what i put on there too because you know the last thing i wanted to do is scare him off i had no idea if he remembered me i had no idea if he wanted to know me i didn't know if he was interested in in meeting me i had no idea what i was looking for was, you know you got to remember i'm already used to rejection so I'm expecting it at this point. So when he didn't respond the first time, I was crushed. And I thought, no, you're not going to be crushed. You're going to reach out one more time. Um, and I was careful in, about saying, hey, you know, I'm looking for my father. And you might be someone that could, you know, that fits his profile. Do you have any information? I was super careful. But I also didn't want to go and disrupt his family life because maybe he never told his new wife. Maybe she didn't know I existed and this could disrupt that. So now I'm overthinking things. I'm thinking, you know, what if this and what if that? And, and just total analyzed brain going on, um, making it harder for me to just do what I needed to do. So I finally decided after two attempts to, to contact him and no response that I needed to look through their friend request. I just got this, this, um, prod to just look to their their friends and see who they have in common. And I came across someone that had a similar name to my dad. And I thought, well, 
I wonder if this is like their son or something like that. So this was January, um, January 30th of 2016. Um, and I'm, sitting at the computer. Actually, I woke up thinking, you should just give it up. Just hang up the towel. You're never going to find him. He's never going to respond to you. There's no way of contacting him if he's not going to respond. Just, just give it up. And I thought, no, I'm not going to give it up. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to I'm going to find something, some way. And I, I sent a message to this other person on there saying, hey, and this is, you've seen this in the video. If you've watched the video I created about the text messages, where I'm asking, hey, I'm looking for my dad. You know, it, it, this person is on your friends list. Do you do you um, have any information or something like that? And he's like, well, yeah, I have a sister named Dawn, but nobody has seen her in for a long time. And I was like, okay, how I how um, coincidental is it that he has a sister named Dawn and their names are you know Patrick McCarty. <laughs> So I kept going back and saying, well, you know, I was abducted by my mom when I was four. And he goes, yeah, that's the story I got. And all of a sudden, I have this unreal feeling, um, not certain that I'm reading this screen right, and I'm, maybe I'm dreaming this up or, or something. So I, I call for my son, and I'm like, is this real? <laughs> I'm just totally, like, not believing that this is actually happening. And he's like, yeah. So he read it out loud. I'm like, okay, so I'm not reading things into this. This this is this person saying that he has a sister named Dawn that was abducted when she was four. And then I asked him if his father would be interested in talking to me. And he goes, yeah, I'll call him. And in five minutes, I was on the phone and I heard my father for the first time after 44 years say, hello, Dawn. And it was just unreal at that point. And then the emotions, now this is something that people need to be prepared for because the emotions come, came flooding. They didn't come in piece by piece. They all came, all at the same time. And it was like a fire hose was aimed at my chest where I was so happy and excited for talking to him. But then I found out I had three brothers that I missed out on, on an entire lifetime of and they're old enough to have their own kids. And I didn't get to be raised with them. I didn't get to know them. So my anger was there. It was on full blast. So not only was I happy, I was angry. I was confused. I was, you know, it was just, it was all there. And I had to go and get help because I was not able to um, navigate. I have no, I've never felt this before, this, this out of control emotionally was just so much. I couldn't handle it. I cried for an entire week. And my boss finally said, I'm so glad that this is happening to you, but I can see that you're in a lot of pain. And I think you need to go talk to somebody. Do you know that I didn't even think about that? That I needed to go and talk to somebody until she suggested it? So I was like, oh, I, can, I, should, go, I should go talk to somebody about this? You can do that? <laughs> it was, I mean, I just had no idea at that point because I never got help. I didn't get help when I was strangled, when my stepsister would bash my head into the ground during one of my other, you know, abused moments and I could have had a concussion. I wasn't, yeah, so it's a, it was um, when I thought I'm, you know, when I was a kid and my head's being bashed into the ground, they didn't take me to go see if I had a concussion. So 
when my boss said these words to me about you need to go talk to somebody, mental health or doctors were never something on my mind. I didn't have a broken leg. I knew for a broken leg I'd go because I did break my leg. But for this, I never even had an inkling that this was something I could go and talk to somebody and get help. So when she said that, I was like, okay, I got to do something because I'm an emotional wreck. I've never, I've never felt like this before in my life. So I started getting the help and the, the therapist was actually really good. She never used the word parental alienation, but she did talk about the trauma, the transgenerational trauma. She did talk about some of the things that I hear now that I didn't even realize what she was really talking towards at that point. She like she didn't say that one parent did this to you. She knew about the abduction. She knew that was all wrong. She told me you have CPTSD and these, you know, this is something that you're going to deal with, but I need to show you. And she's like, you're, don't be in despair. You're going to have tools by the time we're done and you're going to know how to deal with your emotions better. So that's what we worked on. She really kind of helped me get going on controlling the emotions and understanding them and saying, okay, I'm angry because of this, but this really is not my thing to be angry about. That belongs to that person. And so I can remove the layers that I didn't need to address and dive into the parts that I needed. And then I knew that I was able to control this piece and the rest of it belongs to someone else. And so that was instrumental in going through this process because if you don't have that help, you're just spinning. You're just reacting. I spent my life reacting to everything. I overreacted to this. I underreacted to that. I, you know, spun out of control over something so stupid. And then I wouldn't, you know, react to something that was super important. So when we go through life like that, we've got to, we've got to reset. We got to put ourselves back on a path that is a streamlined or aligned with who we are and not just react to everything. So when we're in reaction mode, we're not dealing with life effectively. I didn't learn how to deal with conflict because um, conflict was, I was always the loser. So I avoided conflict to no end because I didn't want to lose. <laughs> I didn't want to be hurt. I didn't want to be in that kind of pain. So we have to learn now as adults how to deal with not overreacting, how to deal with conflict. And even more importantly, we have to learn as adults how to set boundaries. And that is super important because you're going to have to set boundaries with the targeting parent. And that is that can be super hard if you don't have help and support. And that's something that adult survivors need, especially the ones that have gone through the severe um, PA like I have with abduction. You have to have support. Support is instrumental. It, you can't get through this alone, um, not, not as effectively. And, you know, having that help and that support there that someone that is not your parents that can help you see, you know, cut through all the fog and really heal. So was something that my therapist, when she, when we were working together, I realized, I think you guys may have seen the stone figure of the father holding the little boy's hand and they both, you know, the father has holes and little boy has. Okay. So if you think about that, I think, I think of myself. Picture the little boy with the same hole as the father. And I describe it as 
my holes were, you know, there was pain around those holes. And on the edges where all the nerve endings were there, were it was red and inflamed. And over time, I learned how to dull the pain by stuffing stuff in there and protecting myself and shielding myself and turning those emotions off and not addressing things and not putting boundaries on. And, you know, so eventually you are numb. You're not really feeling your way through life at all because you've numbed it. And when I started doing the work and finding my father, we were able to pull that stuffing out and the nerve endings were there and they were painful again. But now, now I have the tools to actually heal the pain because I have my, my dad who can talk to me and can share his side, his stories, and just show me how much he loved me all along and told me how much he wanted to be there, that he had these instances, like when he was getting a job interview and he saw a file with my name on it, if he could have access to it with the, he was doing an FBI interview for an overseas job. And he, they had my file there and he wanted so bad to see the file, but they wouldn't let him show it. And I thought, well, that was just cruel to put that in front of your face like that. <laughs> that that's just like not cool. But, you know, over time, he, he was able to tell me what he felt for me. And those healed the pain around those little holes. And, you know, something else that I think was very, very significant in my ability to heal was that I never saw a baby picture of myself until I reunited with him. He had all those pictures. He had them. He has the card from my bassinet when I was from the day I was born. He has all kinds of photos, um, paperwork, just things that you wouldn't expect a dad to have. It's usually the mom that has the keepsake thing. It was my dad that had all that. He kept it this all this time. And so when we reunited, I all of a sudden had baby pictures. And I all of a sudden saw what I always believed because I knew my dad. When I, up until I was five, almost five, I knew him. And it was so familiar. When I heard his voice on the phone that first, that first day, that familiarity was still there. And I knew, I knew all of a sudden, I didn't have one bit of fear that I had carried with me my entire life, wondering if I needed to be afraid of him. As soon as I heard his voice, I knew that I didn't need to be afraid. I uh, I can tell to you that uh, I have all the keepsakes of my daughter because my uh, ex now uh, left with the child and her handbag and the rest of it, everything what normal what normal people so to speak will will try to to keep with them. For memories and whatnot, she she just left it. She literally went and started a completely new life. Yeah, well, you have a treasure that you know your daughter's going to need someday. When, you know, and that that there is so important for anybody, any parent out there listening, who maybe um, fears that it'll be too late. They won't, you know, maybe they won't be here or you know something. But if you leave this treasure box for them to find or to be able to give it to them. 
that is going to do a lot as far as helping them heal because this is an identity crisis. I had an identity crisis my entire life because I didn't know who half of me was, right? I knew that my mom, you know, yeah, she abducted me, but she abandoned me first. So I had a really bad trust issue, especially with women, because the two women that were supposed to be significant in my life were abusive. So when my mom talks about, you know, my dad being violent, I saw my mom as the violent one. I never thought of my dad as being violent. And if you, if you see him now and you talk to my brothers and my nieces and, and his wife, my dad never was a violent person, ever. So these, these stories or these memorabilia that you have build that confidence that your daughter might be missing or that I was missing because I didn't have that part of it. I didn't have that side of the story. So it was uncertainty, the unknown. And it's an empty spot in your heart that we have to stuff and protect until we can find the real parts that belong there and we can put those we can put it back into the hole and fill that hole with the real memory with the real truth the real story and what that parent meant to us and what we meant to the parent is super important so parents that are listening you may not be able to speak to your children but you can keep memorabilia you can communicate with them um sometimes i know a lot of parents will set up an email account and save this information a google drive full of all of this stuff that's digitally stored so that they they can if all they need is a login id and a password when they get to, you know to the point where they can access it in their own time so you might not want to say here's a box let's go through it it might be too much but let's say that they want to take the time when nobody's watching them and there's no expectations where they might actually let curiosity take, you know, get the better of them and go and start looking. So it's super important to have that kind of information available for your children, especially if they're not sure what to believe. And it's never their fault that they don't trust you or they don't like you. Let's say they say they don't like you. Let's say they don't want anything to do with you. Let's say that they they think that you're the, the worst person in the world. None of that's true. And they have to say that because this is what they've been conditioned to. And a lot of time it's more of their pain talking than it's actual truth. Their pain is, is talking through that. And it's expressed in a hateful way because they're, they're hurt. And when you're, when you're a kid, even a young adult, we, we don't necessarily have that frontal lobe or that cortex really um, evolved and established to the point that we can differentiate between those things. So that development doesn't take place until you're about 25 for girls and maybe even older for boys. So anything younger than that, when someone is, is expressing, it's, it's the only way they know how. So it may not be that they're actually angry at you. They might be angry at the whole situation. And you're actually the safe parent because they didn't have to regulate you. They didn't have to do anything. They could express themselves to you because 
they knew you're going to always be there. You're not going to abandon them, even though you may not be able to be with them. They know that you're always going to be there. But this parent that they're having to stay with and deal with is one that they're always going to have to work through. And that's the one they have to be cautious of. I would like to emphasize a, a very important point, which you brought up from your own experience. Um, again, a lot of people wait, 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 uh, saying, just wait, something good happens. Children get older, they will come back. We forget another important point, which you mentioned that uh, when you were so close, you finally got the details. Let's say you got the address, you got everything you need to do. Now you find yourself in the situation where you're afraid. Why you're afraid? Uh, because of maybe you're gonna cause more harm to the new family. Maybe he will be angry at you uh, that you you didn't try to look harder, or uh, maybe he feels like you abandoned him at some point. And these these issues are also almost never addressed. That even when the child will finally miraculously will be so close to reconnecting to the missing parent the child will hesitate a lot to to make that crucial step forward and to initiate the first contact and and this is mm-hmm. well what if what if everything that they've been told is true all of a sudden that panic sets in you know and even though it's probably not because you know, when we face it, if someone has to resort to gaslighting, chances are it's not true. If if someone has to tell you what a terrible person someone else is and expects you to take their word for it, then chances are it's not true. So, when, you know, that fear is, oh, my gosh, what if there's any truth to that? And, and that's something that can set us back where, you know, we might be in a place where, okay, I'm going to go find them. I'm going to do this. And then right before you get to that last, step, all of a sudden the fear sets back in and the fear will tell you anything and everything that will help you to not move forward. Fear is tricky, but you got to take fear and say fear works both ways. And what if I never have the chance again to find them? I've got to do this no matter what. So you got to use fear to your advantage. Don't let someone else's fear become your fear. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and sometimes Sometimes uh, the children will be uh, in a position where they would like to speak to, but they will feel uh, the abandonment is so strong that, uh, and the conditioning of the mind for so long, this brain, constant brainwashing, never ending, never stopping brainwashing. No, it doesn't. So my mom st- still does it to this day. So, so strong that they will, they will think that. Uh, well, I, I just cannot go and, and, and talk to this stranger. It's completely it's complete stranger. I, I, I don't even remember the guy because in some cases, luckily for you, you have a, whatever little memory you had. In, for example, in, in, in my case and other cases I know around, uh, we have parents with very young children, less than a year old, some of them weeks old. They have no recollection of any kind whatsoever. So when we get to let's say 10, 15, 18 years old, how you how we what kind of anxiety they might have to just literally walk to a complete stranger and say hello, 
I'm your I'm your daughter, I'm your son, how you're doing, you know, let's let, let's try to reconnect. Mm-hmm. This this is just something really, really people most of the time don't take into account at all. No, and it's it's the the challenge is is you're not you don't want to be rejected. And what if what if they never had a second thought of me? Because you might have been told that. That might have been part of your gaslighting. But you're going to still have that thought of what if they don't even remember that I existed? What if, what if, what if? There's so many what ifs that we could we could end up not going forward with it because we're so afraid that we'll be rejected once again. Because in a way, even though it's not the truth, in a way it feels like rejection when that other parent never comes back in. I remember crying myself to sleep like I was telling you when I was little, you know, four, five, six, six, seven years old, wanting my dad to come and rescue me and wondering where the heck is he? Why isn't he coming to rescue me and take me away from this new hell? Now, those might not be the exact words I would have used four, five, and six, seven years old, but that's what I wanted. I wanted him to take me away from this, this terrible world that I was now living in. It was my twilight zone. So when we grow up and we're still wondering, well, if he didn't show up then, what makes me think he's going to show up now? Or what is she going to want to have anything to do with me? Does she think about me anymore? You know, we don't know, especially when the the, the communication is completely severed, like for in your circumstance where you have no communication whatsoever. And that's, that's the challenge because now it all rests upon desire. And is the desire greater than the fear? And this is what we need kids to know, is that it doesn't matter what anybody said about someone else. What matters is you get your own answers. Don't live someone else's story. Don't take that as the the end of it. You've got to know it for yourself. And everybody I'm talking to that's been through what I've been through, or at least some of what I've been through, they know that to be true. Deep down inside, they know that what I'm saying is true. They know that they need to have these answers because the curiosity is in every single one of us. It's our DNA. It's our our genetic code, you know, it's, it's talking to us because that's what, what's normal is that connection. And when the connection's cut off, your body doesn't forget. Your mind doesn't necessarily forget. And even if you never got to talk to that parent, you know that you have one. You know that you want to know more about them. And that I know for 100% fact is that even if they don't act upon it, they are thinking about it. And if you're thinking about it, if you have any inkling at all, it means you need to go find out, find it out for yourself. You have to get your own story. You can't live through someone else's story. There's no proxy on your life. You can't have a parent give you a life that they, they wanted you to live, excluding things that are, you're entitled to. And every single child on this planet is entitled to know their biological parents. And that's, that is the end of the discussion, really. Every single child has the right to know their biological parents. 
And yes, that means some parents are incarcerated. Some parents are, you know, removed because maybe there was something bad, but does that mean they're permanently bad? I would question that. There are, there are some parents that are too dangerous. And I will, I will allow for that because we do not want to put any child in any danger whatsoever. However, if there is no chance of physical harm or danger, and if the emotional harm is worse by not knowing, then of course they need to go find out because that's the only way to heal that emotional harm that was already done. I hope that made sense. Yes, of course, of course. And uh, you mentioned rejection uh, by the newly found parent. Uh, as well, the child uh, might be truly, well and truly lost in the feelings that, uh, well, now I found this new parent. What about if he rejects me? And then what about if my current parents will reject me because I went above and beyond to find a parent which was lost and now rejected me? I'll basically lose both. And uh, that's super important. Yes, that's then that happens. It does happen. So um, when you're afraid that your newly found parent is, is could reject you, there's other things like it went through my mind. What if his wife doesn't know about me? Or what if they don't want to know about me? So then what you're looking at there is another person alienating the parent away from their child. So that's a different scenario, but it's a continued one. So the, the, that particular parent is allowing other people, and I don't mean to say, make this as an accusation at all, because, you know, again, parents are traumatized too. And a lot of times this is something that is deeper. So it, it, it happens to where that reverse alienation comes into play. And then I've had people reach out to me and say, how do you handle this part about your mom? You know, and what if she were to be angry or whatever? How do you do this without, you know, making her angry? And someone even asked me without alienating her. And I, I had to really think about this. And it, I understand their concern. Um, however, when someone gets mad at you, for trying to do something that you know you need to do and that was right to begin with, that is their selfishness talking because they lost. And they, if they want to cut you out, they were wrong all along and they just admitted it. So uh, any parent that would cut you out of their life because you reached out to your biological parent is not supporting you. And we, of you know, children of parental alienation, we need support above and beyond anything else. That is the, the, one of the most important keys that we need is to have the support. So if someone is going to yank the support because you want to do this, it's for selfish reasons. And that's where we have to learn how to set boundaries and say, you know, and, and let them know, you controlled this all along. And I, like, for example, I took control of my life back and my mom does not get to tell me today what I can and can't do with my new family. In fact, I don't even involve her in it. So she knows nothing that goes on with my found family because it just creates the conflict. 
So I had to set the boundary with her. And it's not easy. I'll tell you, I struggle with setting boundaries with her a lot. And it it was really bad about a year and a half ago where she um, needed a place to move and to move into and she wanted to come live with me. And I've already, we've already tried this over the years. And I knew that I couldn't do this when my, my kids were like, if she comes, we go. Cause they know they see it and they knew that it would not be a good situation. So we have to set these boundaries. We have to learn how, and that's part of getting help to having a, you know, a mental health practitioner that can help us learn how to set those boundaries with that parent that might try to retaliate against you. And if they are retaliating, the first thing you need to think is that's wrong. So don't back out of it just because someone else's behavior is bad. That means you need to do it more because there's so much more you need to discover about what truly happened. Because if that's the case, there's the story is not what you've been told. So the truth is there. These should be flags. Don, you were mentioning getting help. Um, you were looking for your father for a number of years. Uh, I, I expect you turned uh, left, right, and center to various places. Was there any actual help that, uh, for example, you go to uh, City Hall, City Ward, uh, some other governmental agencies, and, and you actually can ask a question and there will be help provided. Did you, did you get any, any help, so to speak, from the government? No. No. In fact, you know, and I never even saw my own adoption papers until January of last year. So, um, or January of 2020, I should say. So, sorry, that was a blur. So, yeah, there was no, there was nothing that a, the government could have helped me with. Only maybe a private investigator um, could help me locate, but there's no resources out there for adult children like me, and, not even for mental health. And and there's no organizations, uh, anything whatsoever, just literally, if you want to ask for help, there's li- like nothing, <clears throat> absolute nothing. Well, you know, and it's funny that you say that because um, I lucked out uh, with my particular therapist. And maybe because it was, you know, 2016, so um, maybe she just happened to be the right person I was led to. But there's so many other people out there like me that go to a therapist and the therapist will say things like, you know, there's nothing I can do to help you. This is the life you were dealt and, you know, there's not a lot I can do. All I can do is tell you to go out there and live life. You know, so they, they denounce it as a problem and, you know, that we're just depressed you know we'll get over it it's a fad it's not something we're gonna be thinking about in a year now a year or two from now so they they don't know how to help us and that's another thing that I think is super important for practitioners and adult survivors alike and even legislators that might be listening to this is that there is help and it can be done and I'm living proof of that that once we understand what happened to us and we can work through the emotions, we suffered from ACEs. And here's something really, really important. Yeah, everybody out there, I think, is getting more and more familiar with the ACEs study. Are you guys familiar with that? No, no. 
Okay. So ACE, okay, good. So ACEs is, okay. ACEs is the, uh, it's the adverse childhood experience. And so what that is, is a, a scale basically of certain criteria that people that suffer through traumatic events as children um, have on this particular, you know, this is how it can be measured. So when I took the ACEs test and you can find it out there on the internet, there's a, there's, the, most of them have the same questions. There's a couple of them with variations, but they're similar. But what's important to know is I, I got a five or a six. Is, you know, technically it says, did, were you abandoned by one of your parents? And I was actually abandoned by my mom. And then maybe, you know, with my dad not coming back and getting me, that felt like abandonment to me. Um, and also the fact that the, the abduction piece. So if one of the questions on there is, it says a lot about this study. And the question is, has the child lost a parent due to separation or divorce? Now, it didn't say, did the child lose a parent due to death, which is, we know is traumatic, right? That would be very traumatic. But that's not on the ACEs study. The study asks, did a child lose a parent due to divorce or separation? Now, why is that? That is significant in knowing that this does cause the child to live through a traumatic event. And if you think about what, um, what a disability is and what is in the DSM, this is something that if we are suffering through that, then of course that applies, right? Doesn't that make sense? So what are we doing to children? We're almost creating this, uh, this, um, environment that they are living through adverse childhood experiences and it's being sanctioned by courts and it's okay to do because only one parent's required but that is part of our trauma and it says so in the aces study it's very sad that uh, the intentions when the family court was created it was to to work for the child and uh, it happened to be that the farther we go the less those intentions are being yeah because they're never looking at long-term effects when you look at the court system they're only looking at the docket of the day they're not looking what does this mean in 10 years for this child what does that mean in 44 years for dawn what does this mean in you know two weeks 10 months it doesn't they don't look at what happens after court they think let's just get them through the court and then they'll figure it out because it's never been the court's job nor their desire to follow through and follow up but they're they're making life-changing changes and decisions for these children that they have no accountability for and no way of knowing what that is going to mean for that child going forward and that's why we have to change how this is done and you know it's my opinion that if a family is breaking up and if parents are going to divorce that they don't need to go through court to divorce because that will be worse for their children in the long run because in court you are adversaries automatically it doesn't matter if you intend to be amicable or if you intend to just separate as friends, the court's going to change that because 
it's designed to. The attorneys are in it to win it. They're not in it to leave amicably. They're in it to win it. They're not going to take a case that they don't think they can win. Right? The courts are going to make a decision and only one side is going to win. The other side is automatically going to lose. The, the whole the whole system is built on a fees basis and uh, winner mm-hmm. takes a lot, loser takes nothing, actually loses, as as, as mm-hmm. the name suggests. A winner takes and, all. And uh, yep. therefore, even even in the best situations where people, like you just said, uh, they come and just say, "Let's do let's do the paperwork uh, amicably." Uh, soon enough, they will find out themselves warring. Uh, who is going to take more money, who is going to take half of mm-hmm. the house, who is going to take half of the car, which part uh, Which part of the car you take, the front, the back, the left, the right. Yeah, those are all the assets. The kids don't belong in that pile. They don't belong in the asset list. But, uh, but that's where they're put. But what happens with the children is the one who retains the children, that side will, of course, will need more assets. And that's where it's really intertwined so badly. Yeah. That, uh, when you think, well, we, we're we're just gonna split the assets, but now because you happen to have a children, of course you'll need ten percent more of everything, or maybe twenty percent, or whatever percent. And this—that's why I think it needs to stay out of the court system and go through. There's other methods of being able to come up with a parenting plan and agreements where you're not having to go through the system because the courts are going to make the winner takes all decision. Where if you if you're not if the only reason why you need to go into court is if you have so many assets that the court has to help you separate them, like maybe you own a business or a lot of you know um, a lot of assets, that kind of a lot of property. Those are the reasons why you need to go through the court system, but not for custody. You do not need to go to court to come up with a custody arrangement. This can be done outside of court and it would save you hundreds of thousands of dollars. To avoid that, and it can be done. So if we're if we're pushing and going through the family court system, we're going to continue to have these these kinds of scenarios. Now, not every case comes out like this, but it's it's quite often that it creates more high conflict than is necessary. And I think that when you know, there's cases that do belong in front of the courts. For example, let's say there is domestic and family violence in the home. So we have to we have to figure that out. We have to um, determine where where is the violence, and then therefore that should be in the court system. But these other scenarios don't need to be in the court system if it can be done amicably outside of the court using mediators, lawyers. Now I've interviewed attorneys, and I've asked them the same questions, trying to gauge what do what do attorneys really think about parental alienation and how does that work in their practice? What do they see? What's going on in the court system? How does the judge respond? I ask them specific questions and I don't detour their answer by my opinion. I, I let them speak freely because we need to know what is what is really going on. And when I ask them, this is what they say. They say, you do not need to come to me to get a divorce. The only time you need to come to me to get a divorce is if you have so many assets that you can't compromise, then we go to court to to just um, dismantle all of that. He's like, but if you're coming to me because you need a custody arrangement, 
basically what they're saying is the attorneys are not good at creating custody arrangements. That's where you need the, the family mediators. And we need good ones. We need better ones. We need people that are actually there for the best interest of the child, the true best interest of the child. So the attorneys themselves will tell you, don't come to me to get an amicable divorce. Don't come here. It's not a place for that. So that's something I think is very significant for, for parents going forward. One, save that money, that $100,000, $200,000, that could put all your kids through college just about. So save that money, put that money towards the living conditions of what's going on between the two households. Figure that part out in your mediation so that it stays in the family and not lining the pockets of the judges, attorneys, family courts. And I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's slimy or anything, but you're giving your money away to them by going through them. And they're the ones that are saying, don't come to us for an applicable divorce. Yes. Inst instead of paying for your own children university, you're letting your lawyer's children go to not yeah, just university, yeah. and they're going to Ivy the best of universities. Yes, but right. what's what's exactly. very sad uh, about the family court, of especially of late, is uh, that family court, even when they see these high conflict cases for absolutely no reason, instead of trying to stop it and 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 just stomping uh, stomping the foot on on the ground and saying enough is enough, you get this, you get that, and that is that. They will allow this theater to continue for years and years, and we can we can probably see one of the better, uh, more you know, more famous cases of like uh, Brad Pitt and uh, Angelina Jolie. It, it's, mm -hmm. it seemed everything was just fine, and one day they fall out of each other, Explode. and out of a sudden, the parent who was just perfectly fine for ten years uh, to to care about six children. Now he is some sort of demon. And on the other hand, the other parent, which was perfectly capable about the same, now he's somewhat trial by media. Double, double the good. It's like if it was mm -hmm. good, now it's perfect. Basically, as much, as much as the first parent lost, all that lost immediately transferred to the other parent and became again to him or her. And, and you would expect yeah. uh, the family court to mediate because that's what they're there for. They're, they're to mediate the animosity between the warring parties. And yet the family court, instead of mediating... And well, they're actually there to, sol to solve, to make a decision. The mediators should be the ones mediating. Correct, correct. But in, in essence, the, the, the court will sometimes... Show, uh, will sometimes... The design of it was to stop the war of continue putting a break and mm -hmm, saying right. this and that and and that and that's final but family court will mm -hmm. allow this to go on and Bantering. on and on and on until families which were absolutely well enough to, to to bring their children to any school they wanted now they can't afford even the most of basics because all the all the money went yeah. to, to to family court to lawyers well, and then you have, you know, the they're paying an, a, an insurmountable amount of child support to equal, you know, to balance 
the living conditions between the two households. So one parent ends up giving up most of their check. And then on top of that, they need to pay alimony. So now you have a parent that doesn't have a house because they, it had to all be equal. So then how do we, how do we balance this better? And I think part of that, and, and I work with national parents organization, I'm the chair for Florida, the state of Florida, and we we're striving for shared parenting. And there's, there's talk about 50, 50, but I think it needs to be the rebuttable presumption of equal shared parenting where again, we bring in the mediators to determine what is the shared parenting time, because it can't be just 50, 50, because everybody has different scenarios in their life, different jobs. And it could be mom that works outside of the home. Dad works from home. We just don't know the dynamics of the home. So how could we just put a cookie cutter? Everybody's 50, 50, no matter what it might, it might look like 75, 25. It might be 60, 40. It might be, you know, one week on, one week off. It might be three days, then four. We don't know what works for each family. So I think that's more important is to design something that works for those parents that can live with, within the, the ruling or the decision of shared parenting so that everybody knows what to expect and they can follow. And when we, when we start talking about 50-50, I think the important piece is that parents need to be equal in the eyes of the law. So when they go to court, it's not about moms versus dads or dad versus mom. It's about what's best for the entire family because your family, like it or not, you're still a family. Even if you're divorced, you're still a family. You still created a child. So you're still connected. And you have to figure out how do we proceed to live, but live separately. And that has to be how we solve the, the, the question of who, what does shared parenting really look like? And we have to look at each situation, um, what works best for that particular family. So it's really hard to um, come across and say, okay, just 50-50 across the board because we see the argument. We see it across social media. We see it in the news. We see it like with Brad and Angelina, like you were talking about, where, you know, you think that we could all figure out how to have the kids half the time. I see it in my own family and other in my other family members where it took a while, but they actually figured out a way to have it done without going to court. So I know it's possible. We just have to start changing how we look at it and what shared parenting truly means. It means two parents that are still parenting together, right? And you're sharing the responsibilities of parenting and whatever that looks like that works for you. That means you have to have both parents willing to, to work together, and that can be a challenge. But when we remove the high conflict piece of it from the courtroom, we're not having such a high conflict where we start. We're starting at a place where they're, they're hopefully in a more amicable mindset to work it out because it is what's best for those kids. It is what's best for the kids to have access to both their parents and not just given a, a replacement parent because one of them decides to remarry or bring in a, you know, a, a blended family scenario, which can also be very traumatizing. That's part of my story. That blended family was very traumatizing for me. 
So I know there's, there's a lot of work to be done on this um, in this area to figure out what is the best scenario. And right now I think it is um, focusing on how can we make the separation of marriage easier on the entire family. Yes, equality, equality, equality is missing big time in family court because mm-hmm. the, the woman, yeah. uh, whatever, whatever the wisdom of old uh, would say, woman takes care more of a child, she can provide more in this and that. But uh, if people can be addressed in family court as equals, there's no gender, there's no, there, there's exactly. no father, there's no mm-hmm. mother, no, no one is better than the other. It's just two people with right. a child in the middle. And now, because we cannot split the child, so to speak, in half, let's split the time. Let's find a way how to split the time. Because even, even when families uh, is together, let's say one parent goes and works uh, out of the city or out of the state or abroad or whatever, they still find time to make calls, to make whatever they need to, to make to keep the communication going. And yet, the moment mm-hmm. we end up in family court, out of a sudden, we need to go almost almost like uh, space, space-like complications that now we need to, to look into books with thousands and thousands of pages of various laws to, to, to decide a simple thing. When can we see the child? Thursday evening, Friday evening, whichever evening the child is available. Why? why or, hey, I'm going out of town next week. Can we switch days? I mean, that should be acceptable. Yes, that, that's that. that. If, if it's needed, if it works, I'll swap you this day for that day. This is when parents are working together and being equal, like you said. Being equal in the eyes of the law, I think, is the important piece that we, when we go in and speak to our legislators, it's not about 50-50. It's about making parents equal in the eyes of the law because that establishes everything else. And. One one thing probably is being a little bit overlooked in uh, in so to speak amicable divorces is even in the best of people when you come to court uh, you will say well we're equal I see you as my husband or wife as equal to myself but when they put you in that environment and lawyer keeps nagging you you can get more if we just do this you you, you will get more you'll get the five percent three percent fifty percent whatever percent of whatever be it children time, be it assets, be it you name it. Out of a sudden, yeah, and then, of it's, a sudden, then it's the blame yeah, game. Out too. of a sudden, people will just uh, start to think, oh, yeah, I think I'm entitled to more. Yeah, I think. Why not? Why, why, why should they settle for 30 if I can get 31? Why should they settle for three hours if, if I can get six? And, and the, the lawyers, the lawyers will fuel this even in the best of people. And sadly, the, the very best people, probably half of the time will fall for it. They came as the best of friends. Let's separate, let's split the things, let's make the court a formality. And out of a sudden, two months later, that formality became an actual war, literally war. And um, now speaking about this uh, equality in court, Sweden, Sweden and basically Nordic countries, uh, they're doing quite a good job. No country is perfect, but uh, Sweden is not allowing the couples uh, to go to court and litigate 
until one year of falling out. So they give you, they force you, literally they force you to, to cool down before you're able to come to court. And even after one year, when you end up in court, there will be no splitting, uh, no splitting uh, right. ways of the way it's done in the rest of Europe or uh, America. Yeah, you're still required to be parents there, where they 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 expect it, which is a really good model. Yes. I think and, you know, and, gender Gentile yeah. talked about that too. Sorry. Co- correct, correct. And uh, then comes the money matter, which really inflames a lot of people. Is uh, that the child support? Is not going to be counted or how much who earns and, and, and why they earn it. If a child needs $500 a month to, to do whatever the child needs to do at that time, that's it. You, you need $500. And uh, not like you'll get a, a US like lawyer who will say, well, if he makes 10000 we will try to take five. Why not? Do you need five? We don't care. If we can, we will take it. And this, this will bring a lot of animosity. The moment you remove the money matters out of family court, uh, this will fix the problem probably 50% the day you remove it because there simply will be no incentives to fight. Half of the incentives to fight, uh, you know, really, really eagerly will be gone. Yeah, that that is ideal. And I think that is really ultimately the best scenario, if you're really talking about the best interest of the child, that is definitely it. So one of the things that you mentioned is that as a child, it might be quite daunting for you to like, you know, have the courage to go and meet your dad and all that. Okay. But what can you do being somebody like say that your friend is going through that or like uh, your girlfriend or boyfriend is going through that or your wife or husband is going through that? What can you do to talk to them? What can you do to encourage them? Or what can you do to make it easier for them to do that? Because we have been talking a lot about what the person can do, but I'm just wondering as the closest person or like, you know, a friend to the person, what can you do? Yeah, I think one one thing I would like to ask the audience is to, you know, especially those that have children or grandchildren or no, you know, friends that have children, what would you, what would, what would it feel like for you to even consider the thought that you may never be able to see your child again? Like if you have a child or children and something happened where you could never see them again, would that be okay with you? So when we see other people that are struggling, we see parents that are struggling. We have 25 million parents in this country, in the United States that are, um, missing or kept or erased from their children's lives. And if you think about if an average household has two children, then we're talking about 40 to 50 million children that cannot see their parents on average. So is it okay if you were told by a judge or other people, just wait till they get 18, wait till they figure it out, they'll come looking for you. Is it okay that um, someone that you know or that you've heard about can't, can't see their children and it's overwhelming to see the pain that they're in and you think, just get over it. Would you want someone to tell you to just get over it? This is a child, not the cake, like I talked about in the beginning. This is a child. And I, I don't know about you, 
But as a parent, I would do anything to see my kids, to protect my kids, to be with them. I would do anything. And so when you go into court and we see emotional parents, it's because they're losing their creation, the very essence of their being, the purpose in many lives that a parent has. So we have to be mindful and emotionally intelligent of what someone is going through when they're told, because you got a divorce, you can no longer see your children. That's nobody deserves to hear that. Nobody should hear that. And I want people to also think when you tell one of the parents, just deal with it, you're also telling the kids, just deal with it. Now, is that okay? Is everybody listening to this story okay with someone else deciding when and if you can ever see your children again? This is not okay. And this is not what our society in any country should stand for. And sometimes I uh, say to people who, who say, well, deal with it, I, I, I literally tell them that, you know, we go and fight wars in places where we, where we have no business whatsoever. We murder people mm-hmm. for no good reason, yet you're trying to tell me that I should just be okay with the current situation that my child is taken away from me, abducted, right. removed snatched i'm suffering the child is suffering and and you're saying that's okay but yet i'm from the same government yes and 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 the very same government the next day will send you a letter go and find yourself in iraq and and do do whatever we requested to do that that's that's absolutely not a good point now we need to get back to family and, you know, my family is so important to me. In fact, I've gone on beyond, you know, so to finish the story with my dad finding him and then losing him only two week, two years later, almost to the day, it was just a week shy of two years that I had reunited with him. I actually found living relatives. I have living cousins. I've met my brothers. I've met my nieces. And I actually went on a road trip and did a, a little mini family reunion so that I could go meet this extended family that I missed out on. I didn't have my own aunts and uncles growing up. You know, I had one grandmother that I was able to know. The other one I would have never been able to meet because she she died, but I would have known about her because my dad would have been able to share what he remembers. So I would have at least known about her. And it was important for me to connect my family back together again. So I've done a lot of ancestry um, work and I've found um, a lot of my living relatives and I've found our lineage. I know what, I know what our ancestral line looks like. I found my dad's biological father and connected with those living cousins. And I even went so far as to find out that I actually have a living uncle and two living aunts. So if you think back in the beginning of my story, when I started telling you that you'll do, you'll be needed someday and that I will have a purpose. The purpose is that I reconnected my family line and now it's back in its rightful place. So going forward, my children's children and and going on through family will know the ancestral line. It realigned everything. And the, the part where I'm needed is I'm the voice 
as often as I can, as well as others with me, you know, like me, that are also speaking out because we're searching for them so that they know they're not alone because who better than us to support them and help them find the courage, the strength, and know that they're supported in their mission to find their answers. So all of that kind of ties ties together um, in this whole whole scenario. Uh, just to reiterate uh, what Dawn said earlier on about the family court, it is absolutely inconceivable that uh, since a family court creation, the split family model became a norm, whereas before the family court came into place, uh, a family used to consist of both, uh, both parents and children full-time period. And even, even if you manage to split, you will split not to live in the same house, sleep in the same bed, but you will still have normal unhindered access to so the children. Mm -hmm. And yet when the right. family court was created, the intentions were to, 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 to fix it, and yet in, instead they completely broke. We completely broke the, yeah. the the family unit, so to speak, and and now and somewhere along the line, sorry, yeah, yes, please. So somewhere along the line, they decided that a replacement parent is sufficient. That if mom remarries or dad remarries, then the child can know that person as mom or dad as well. So it's okay for this parent to disappear. It's okay for the biological parent to just go away. Step aside for the betterment of your child, which is a misnomer because that is false. That is a myth. It is not better for the child to have a replacement parent. It never has been. It wasn't for me. It was detrimental. It almost killed me. It is not sufficient to replace the parent. Children need more love, not less. So it would be better if the child had two fathers, one being the primary, one being the biological father, the other one only being there because he happened to marry into a family that existed, right? He's not replacing right. anybody. Supplementing. He might be enhancing, supplementing, providing more love. And if they're providing more love, if they can be, and this goes with mom or dad, if they can be strong enough in their own marriage to be a supplemental provider of love for the child, that to me is okay. But when we have a court system that says, no, we just want that person to go away and this person can step in, that is damaging and it will affect that child for the rest of their life. It is a life sentence that we're passing down to these kids who have no say in what happens in their life. It is their life. It doesn't belong to their parents. Their parents are only the stewards over them until they're old enough to be on their own but it belongs to the child, nobody else. And so we can't make these unilateral or these decisions that will affect the child for the rest of their life simply because it made sense that day in court. And, and sadly, these decisions, these split moment decisions will make these children somewhat broken and they in turn mm -hmm. will have their children broken. And, and, this, cycle, snowball and this cycle will just never stop. Yeah, and right. I'm I'm so happy when you mentioned that when you had your child, uh, you said this this cycle must be stopped. I'm going to stop it, and it's stopping here now, never to be reinstated at any level. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. That moment I knew that I had to be different. And it was only a, a, a couple weeks ago that I realized why, because I was born to stop it. I'm here. The purpose I'm here is to stop it in my line. But we need other people like me to help stop it in theirs. So if I have to keep screaming this from the rooftops and talking as often as I can to have other people hear me and see that this is possible, that we can reunify and we can even reunify with our missing parent and keep the connection with our existing family. Even if you had a, a, a step parent come in, it doesn't mean all that has to go away. You don't have to choose. And if, if there is a choice that's being made, it's because you're being forced to. And that says a lot more than anybody really wants you to, you know, to hear. So we should be able to exist and say, okay, look, I'm finding my parent because this is what I need. And I need that support from you. And I don't, I know you may not like, look at Goldie Hawn and her daughter, Kate, where Kate wants to invite her father to the wedding, but her mom says, absolutely not. That can't happen. That cannot happen. We cannot have a parent changing the fact that this this daughter wants her father at her wedding and the mom is so racked with hatred to that of that person that she is trying to force her daughter to exclude him from her own marriage her own wedding the most important day of her life before giving birth to kids and the mother is trying to prevent that happy day for her i would resent her forever after that. So parents are really asking for their kids to resent them by how, by trying to force these types of decisions on them. And when we start waking up and start realizing, okay, yeah, this isn't okay. Guess who's going to lose? I hope last last bit just to. <laughs> just to conclude what uh, what Don just said, uh, I hope that my daughter will have uh, enough strength whenever she feels, whenever she will be ready to, to cut this vicious cycle of uh, destroying families. Regardless what, regardless what her mother taught her, said her, uh, filled her with, that she will be able to stand up one day and and just reach that decision like you did and say i'm not going this way i i don't see the reason it's detrimental to me it's detrimental to to my family It's detrimental for future generations and i'm stopping it and if mother if mother needs to be put away with extreme boundaries so that will be just to preserve the future so be it yeah and that's unfortunate but if that's the choice that person makes you know we can't be accountable i can't be accountable for my mom trying to say whether or not like kate can't be accountable for goldie hahn to you know with her behavior that's goldie hahn she owns that we can't be accountable for that parent who's making made these these bad choices for us throughout our entire childhood and it's so important for our mental health, like literally for our own mental health, it is important for us to have this reconnection, this reestablishment with our parents. 
it, it should have never gone away in the first place because each parent provides us with different things. Moms are nur- nurturing, right? They're loving, they're doting, but dads have a different role and they teach us how to deal with conflict. They teach us how to have good self-esteem, how to be confident out there in the world, how to deal with people in general. There's so many things that both parents bring to a child. And the best person to deliver that lesson is the biological parent. Not even the step-parent can replace that. There is no replacing that inner sense between one parent to a child. You can't replace that. You can replace the body, the image. You can put that in the house. It could share dinner with you. You know, they could share dinner with you at the dinner table, but they can't replace that inner parent-child bond. It's just not possible. All right, guys. This is the end of part two. Come back next week to listen to part three with Don, where we talk a lot about the abductions that are currently happening in Japan. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable in these topics and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone And if you have further questions or comments or feedback regarding Find My Parent or this interview, you can always email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page at findmyparent.org. And we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care. Till then.